Law 360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my co-host, Bill Donahue. Hello, hello. And Alex Lawson. Hey, guys. Guys, before we start, we have to give a shout out to a fan. I Indeed. love that. I like the idea that we have fans. That's <laughs> the first thing I like here. We, yes. got, a, we got a legendary email from, uh, from a Jewel Gilbert uh, on a plus use of the pro se email account from Jewel uh, Gilbert here asking if uh, you know w- we have discussed on multiple occasions that that Alex and I both watch ABC's The Bachelor uh, yeah. and to the extent that I am in regrettably a Bachelor <laughs> fantasy league uh, I love this about you and um, one of the contestants this year was an attorney and uh, I had picked her as my first overall pick. They knew each other beforehand. It seemed like a good pick. She eventually gets kicked off the show. Now, many as, months after the... Sorry, go ahead, As discussed on Pro Se. That's all I wanted to say. We were, yes. we, we were all over the Kelly Flanagan dismissal. But anyway, so, there's been an update, and that prompted the email. She is now dating the the Bachelor in, yes. in real life after the mm-hmm. whole thing went down. So... Yeah. Uh, Jewel emailed us asking, does that mean that I now won retroactively my bracket? The answer is no. And, oh, and unfair. I was going to ask if you brought this up with the commissioner. I did. And yeah. I said, when am I getting my winnings? And I was told that I am good at picking true love, but not at picking bachelor winners. Oh, yeah. I, you know, it's a crucial distinction. I, I I do have to say, as as I pondered this question, you know, I Kelly was was by far my favorite contestant on the show. You, Bill, are probably my favorite person in your bachelor fantasy league, I guess. Uh, <laughs> so, I mean, I'm inclined to rule in your favor, but I think right. I think it does have to be confined to the actual strictures of the program. Yeah. And it ended sure. with Peter picking Madison, the virgin basketball player from Auburn, and we kind of have to live in that reality. <laughs> Uh, well, so anyway, Jewel, thanks for the email. It was uh, it was a good read. Um, gave me yes, some good fodder so for uh, for claiming that I actually won my league. So I uh, <laughs> I appreciate it. What do we have? Uh, what do we have on deck for the show? We have a super interesting show. Uh, Bill and I were fortunate enough to sit down. Not well, we didn't sit down. No one's sitting down with anybody anymore. But we we talked with uh, Judge Jed Rakoff from the Southern District of New York. He wrote an interesting piece about the struggles of the court system to deal with social distancing and the post-coronavirus reality. Uh, He had a funny incident uh, during a hearing this week that we discussed a little bit and some broader issues facing the courts. And that was a really interesting interview uh, that we will get to in a little bit. But we do have some news on deck, as always. We do. Uh, Thomas speaks. (laughs) It's shocking. This this Rise of Skywalker reboot sucks. Sorry. Um, <laughs> yes. So, uh, Clarence Thomas, Supreme Court Justice, um, went this week from being a very notoriously silent justice on the bench to uh, constantly talking. Um, <laughs> after after years of of not participating in oral arguments, he um, uh, repeatedly asked questions and was inva- in, involved in. Um, the court's sort of historic first week of live stream arguments, prompting everyone in the legal community to say, what 
is going on? I just love this story because um, we've written whole articles at Law360 in the past about him asking like a single question in yeah. an argument or making oh, yeah, it's, one comment. It's, it's big news, news every time. It's this definitely... is an upending of the natural order of things on the court. <laughs> um, but yeah. can we sort of run down exactly how silent he's been just to give context to what happened this week? Yeah, he. it's, it's definitely like top you know top, like a, a big part of his bio at this point is his his reputation in yeah. you know is um that one of the things people know about Clarence Thomas is that he doesn't ask questions during oral arguments um you know his fellow justices especially you know you talk to supreme court historians uh, that this is a very very chatty sort of period for the justices they ask a yeah. lot of questions they pepper attorneys as they're as they're making arguments um but but Thomas does not. He stays silent. Um, he'll whisper to Stephen Breyer, who sits next to him. He'll, you know, take notes. He'll he'll be involved. He's obviously involved, but but he he doesn't ask questions uh, verbally the way that that all of his colleagues do. Um, I, we should say almost never because yeah, I was um, gonna say how 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 exactly long are we talking? I know there have been like long gaps punctuated by single instances, but let's let's talk about it. So in in 2016. Um, he broke a 10 year silent stretch <laughs> since 2006. Wow. Um, yeah. By asking a few questions in a case involving um, a federal law that bars people with domestic violence convictions from owning guns. Um, and, th- and then last year, he also asked a series of questions in the case of Curtis Flowers, who was um, the man who was tried six times for the same murders in Mississippi. Um, that was a big Supreme court case. Um, uh, it's, this is such a thing that Thomas even makes the headlines in in the legal world when he sorta talks during arguments. Yeah. There was in 2013 he he like sort of made a joke. He like cr- cracked a joke about Yale Law School, his his alma mater. Um and you know, after that happened, the the transcript recorded just a few sort of like broken words from him. They didn't really explain what the what he was saying, if he was being serious, if it was a joke, whatever. Sure. The New York Times ran this deep dive analysis talking to, <laughs> you know, reading that there had been laughter in the courtroom afterwards about asking the attorneys what he had said, all this different stuff. So it's a big deal, um, uh, you know, to people who watch the Supreme Court that Thomas is talking. I mean, what has he said or what have people surmised about the reason that he's so silent? I, I mean, it's obviously been a choice up until now. Yeah, I mean, it's it's he's obviously he's a Supreme Court justice. He's obviously a, a a brilliant legal mind. He writes opinions. He goes on press tours. Like he he you know he it's not like he can't do it. Um, the main theory is that he he thinks his colleagues talk too much. That this is a, a <laughs> like an ideological sort of thing about the way that the court should should yeah. um at, should act, and that this that this constant sort of peppering of questions muddles the proceedings of an argument. Um, in 2000, he was quoted as saying that, that SCOTUS arguments can look something like an episode of family feud. Um, in, in 2012, he said uh, that he just sees value in letting the attorneys make their points without cutting them off. That quote was quote, I don't see where that advances anything. Maybe it's the Southerner in me. Maybe it's the introvert in me. I don't know. I think that when somebody's talking, somebody ought to listen. So it's it's definitely a conscious choice that he doesn't see value in constantly cutting people off the way that some of his colleagues do. We have a whole we have a whole segment later on that I just hinted at about 
courts adjusting the post-COVID reality, uh, the uh, the new the the most immediate post-COVID reality for the Supreme Court is that Thomas talks now. So let's yeah. talk about uh, so let's talk about what he said. Um, and and like I said, we can't get the guy to shut up now. Yeah, everybody was watching on Monday because it was these, um, you know, it was the first ever live streamed oral oh, arguments, yes, yeah. which is a really big deal in the legal world. Uh, many listeners of this show will know that the court has been criticized for being a little bit closed off. You know, it's one of our three branches of government and it's it's kind of a black box how, you know, what is happening in there and why they do things. And um, mm-hmm. so this whole idea of televising or live streaming arguments has been a big point of discussion um for for years now so it's, it's mm-hmm. a big deal that they're finally doing it albeit you know be sort of out of necessity um uh as anyone who's gone through working you know through the coronavirus quarantine is yeah. very aware at this point crosstalk on a live stream <laughs> is very unpleasant and chaotic and no one knows who's talking and everyone sort of starts and stops and starts and stops um we do it occasionally while we're recording this show uh all so, the time the court has decided that the way that they're going to do these things is that um, Chief Justice John Roberts will, you know, the, the attorneys will start arguing and um, Roberts will ask his question when he wants to. And then he will call the, the he will allow the justices sort of a, 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 a free moment to ask a question in the order of their seniority. So that means that the the Roberts Roberts chimes in and says, Hold on to the person arguing, <laughs> Justice Thomas. What would you like to ask? And ah. um, and they ask their question. So you immediately, everyone sort of had a rough idea of how this was going to work on on Monday. Um, uh, you know, I, I should say I was covering the very first hearing um, yeah. because it was a big trademark case, and I so I was listening in, and everyone sort of knew like. You know, this is how it's going to go. He's going to call. Like, is he going to call on Thomas? Is he not going to call on Thomas? Is it going to go straight to to Ruth Bader Ginsburg? Sure. How how will will this work? And um, you know, at one point, uh, you know, five ten minutes into the arguments, you you hear the chief, and he just goes, Justice Thomas. Thank you, Counsel uh, Justice Thomas. Uh, yes, uh, Ms. Ross. The a couple of questions. Um, the. So it's just like everyone was sort of shocked that, you know, he's he's asking these questions um, and, you know, Twitter sort of blew up that that um, that Justice Thomas was speaking. And, you know, he went ahead and asked a few um, questions for for the, the arguing party. He went uh, later on in the same hearing. He he asked the other side more questions. The next day we got we had another round of, of these these streamed arguments and he asked more questions. And, and now as we're recording on Thursday, Every single one of these, uh, every day that we've done these these live stream arguments, Thomas has been involved. And so, again, it doesn't sound, you know, taken in a vacuum, it doesn't sound that crazy. The Supreme Court justice is involved in Supreme Court arguments. But <laughs> no. for, for people who've been watching this for, for watching over the course of Thomas's career, and you're like, oh, he's spoken four different times over over 20 years, and now he's spoken four times in the last week, it's sort of earth shattering. I mean, you got it. It makes you wonder moving forward as hopefully someday we get back to to a more normal time when people can actually be in the Supreme Court building arguing. Is this structure maybe going to stick around? Maybe they decide that this is useful. Yeah, well, and 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 that because that's sort of what's going around, which is you know that that 
the reason why he's participating is that he likes this structured format, that it, it sort of deals with the problems that he was complaining about uh, out of necessity, that um, you know he doesn't like when people talk over each other and when you just sort of harass the attorney and cut them off, yeah. um, that this is more of a structured moment to ask the thing that you want to. And Amber, I think it's a really great point. There's been some talk, even outside of the context of Thomas uh, participating in arguments, there's been some talk that maybe this is just a better format, that this idea of allowing the justices a structured sort of series of questions might be something that even when we're back in the courtroom that they might want to adopt some of. And it's isn't that fascinating that this idea of we've, we've all been talking about the, all the different things we're doing during this during this crisis and what things we'll keep doing afterwards and when we just figured out they worked well i think this is a really great example of something that might be you know a big change that the supreme court might take things from and and stick with once this is all said and done so for our next story i want to shift gears a little bit and believe it or not guys let's talk about sports oh my i know what, uh, what in the world is going on <laughs> Well, this one is also employment. Thomas so. is talking. You have a sports I story. Know, I, sports I don't even story. know. Okay, sorry. I mean, ahead. in fairness, this one's also employment, and you guys yeah. know how much I like talking about that. So yes, as often. I want to discuss how um, the U.S. women's soccer um, lawsuit about equal pay is going. Mm-hmm. We got a big development at the end of last week. So this is the one where a group of female players sued the U.S. Soccer Federation for pay discrimination. Mm-hmm. Um, they saw a big chunk of that case get tossed out by California judge because the women actually made more than their male counterparts. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, this is a fascinating case. This has obviously drawn a lot of eyeballs. The women's soccer team is like, inc- I mean, this is not a legal question, but like the women's soccer team is very popular. The men's soccer team like mostly sucks. And so it's like become a flashpoint for a lot of like gender disparity issues sure. that arise in professional sports on a broader scale but it's there there are interesting legal questions um let's just start there i mean you said i mean how were they arguing about a pay disparity if they made more in terms of sort of absolute dollar figures i know it has to do with the way the federation was dispensing the money and things like that. it does so this one has some wrinkles about that um Mm -hmm. so just to sort of set the scene of what part of the suit was tossed out that was so important Players on the U.S. women's national team filed the suit last year, and they were looking for $66.7 million in damages on these now nixed equal pay claims. They had argued that um, collective bargaining agreements show that the women were given unequal bonuses and mm-hmm. sort of um, the pay structures were unfair compared to what men had um, because the men had uh, a higher payout for um, participating in things like the World Cup and other tournaments that the women didn't yep. have. Mm-hmm. The women's team, just for context here, like Alex pointed out, <laughs> they're a much better team. Yeah. Um, they have won four World Cup tournaments since the 90s, and the men's team has never won for the U.S. So what we saw this week is that it's a U.S. District Judge R. Gary Klausner. He disagreed with the women's argument. He said that the pay disparity claims under the Equal Pay Act can't stand because during the time the suit covers, the women were paid on average $221,000 per game and the men only got $213,000 per game. So is this just a question of how this, uh, you know, the labor agreement that dictates the way that the men's and women's soccer teams sort of work? Is that sort of at the root of this? 
Yeah, that is really what's going on here. So this turns on those collective bargaining agreements because they are union negotiated terms Mm -hmm. for how the men's and women teams are paid. And the judge basically said that they had negotiated differently. The men and women had negotiated things with different objectives, that the women had looked for a pay structure that included more guaranteed pay than the men did. And the men mm-hmm. instead chose to push for bonuses for winning and advancing in tournaments. So you can't that seek, that, you can't seek these considerations and then claim that there's, you know, that, that you, you, you bargained, you gave up things for this. Right. 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 So a lot of this comes down to the judge saying, well, if the negotiators had different priorities, that's how you see a disparity in how things play out. Um, and the judge actually said this about the female players that they quote, cannot now retroactively deem their CBA worse than the men's national team CBA by reference to what they would have made had they been paid under the pay-to-play structure when they themselves rejected such a structure. Yeah, this is sort of, you know, judges by by nature sort of give a lot of deference to collectively bargained agreements and say, this, this is what you asked for, this is what you got, and you kind of have to live with it now. In terms of the broader picture of the suit, um, you said, I mean, a good a, a, a big chunk of the claims were thrown out. I mean, is that like a death blow, basically, for the suit? Or, well, I mean, what are we looking I mean, at as it moves forward? We have a couple things going on for looking toward the future. These were by far the biggest part of the suit. This was really yeah. the heart of what they were arguing. But there are a few discrimination claims that the judge is letting proceed. Um, some of those are rooted in allegations of disparities between the men's and women's teams in terms of things like travel conditions. So like the men got more chartered planes and some perks like that mm-hmm. um, and some support services largely relating to medical staff for both teams. Um, but those are small in comparison to what we're talking about. Yeah. But already a spokesperson for the female players has said the athletes were, quote, shocked and disappointed with the ruling and they vowed to appeal it. So this is far from fully settled. It's going to mm-hmm. continue on. Um, our own Zach Zagger, who's our sports reporter here at Law 360, he wrote an analysis where he talked um, to a bunch of people, but including some professors, about what the chance the women have moving forward, given this ruling. Yeah. Um, one of them told him that some of this could depend on essentially the framing of those collective bargaining agreements. And one suggestion for the women's potential next set of arguments could be that They could try to prove that there's a reason female players negotiated for guaranteed compensation instead of pushing for big bonuses for wins for tournaments like the men's team did. And there may, we don't know what evidence will be unearthed, but the argument would be if they can prove with any factual things that they were basically told, like, there's no chance you're going to get that in this bargaining session, then it may uh, sort of explain why they would have taken a deal structured in a different way. Um, and I think that's ultimately what the women may may say here. One of soccer's biggest stars who I even knew before this story, because you guys know how I am with sports people, but Megan Rapinoe is everywhere. Um, she was on Good Morning America just this week, and she said that, you know, the, the men's contract was never offered to the women and certainly mm-hmm. not the same amount of potential payouts for wins. And her quote was this. To say that we negotiated for a contract, and that's what we agreed to, I think so many women can understand what this feeling is of going into a negotiation knowing that equal pay is not on the table.
This week, the Pro Se Podcast is sponsored by Roundtable Group. For over 25 years, Roundtable Group has been the leading provider of expert witness referrals to litigators. Roundtable Group's skilled team is available now to discuss your case and present candidates and fee schedules free of charge. Just visit roundtablegroup.com or call 202-935-3300. Like everyone else, the federal judiciary is adjusting to the challenges of an entirely virtual workplace, and there have already been a fair share of headaches even at the highest levels of the court system. Joining us to discuss those difficulties and hopefully some tips for attorneys and court staff is Judge Jed Rakoff of New York Southern District Court. Welcome to the show, Judge. Pleasure to be here. You wrote a really thoughtful article for this month's uh, New York Review of Books uh, that is just sort of a state of play Um, about the challenges that the courts are facing as they try and grapple with the virus and social distancing that has come in the wake of that. Um, I uh, put that piece on Twitter uh, a few minutes ago, and we will put it in the show notes for this episode. But what would you you most want people to understand about what's happening in the courts right now? Well, on the one hand, um, uh, my court, I think, has reason to be proud of the fact Uh, that unlike some courts, uh, we've been able to move forward on the great majority of uh, both the civil and criminal cases that we have. Um, And that is a function of having planned uh, literally decades in advance for uh, uh, this unfortunate pandemic. Uh, After 9-11, when the Southern District of New York was closed for a month, we determined that we needed to have more advanced planning, mm-hmm. and we were aided by the overall federal judiciary, which after Hurricane Katrina began uh, moving in that same direction. Mm-hmm. The uh, There nevertheless have been some significant challenges, of some of which we anticipated and some of which we didn't. I would say the the single biggest challenge is uh, which prisoners, if any, to release uh, to so-called home confinement uh, on the ground that they are at high risk for the virus. Uh, And that uh, is an area where the law was not well developed. And so we're having to confront both factual and legal challenges that are somewhat new. Mm -hmm. Uh, And yet we have to make these decisions quickly because if they're to have any effect, uh, uh, if someone is going to be released, we've got to do it sooner rather than later. Yeah, you you had written that sort of making the decisions about the extent to which people are flight risks or the extent to which they are risks to commit violence if they are released is was something of a an imprecise science, even when when circumstances were normal. I mean, and that's only been intensified, I can only imagine. Yes, I, I wouldn't even call it a science. I would call it uh, uh, a blend of uh, experience and probabilities. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, the experience that most of us have that is relevant to this is bail applications. But... Um, this is different 
because there's a whole new element, which is um, that if you keep the guy in prison and he is at high risk, uh, the results could be disastrous. So mm-hmm. that, of course, weighs heavily with any judge uh, in making those decisions. You also laid out that uh, this has caused problems for civil litigation, for the idea that that some some parties are are looking at at oral arguments as a as a more difficult um, task. Could you sort of walk us through, you know, what challenges yes. that this is posed on that front? So there's actually no requirement under federal law that there be oral argument uh, in civil motion practice, but virtually all judges uh, give that opportunity. And it's not just for the benefit of the litigants, it's also for the benefit of the judge. It's the one opportunity a judge has to really ask questions uh, of the uh, uh, respective parties. In With all the, the um, difficulties presented by the coronavirus crisis, um, the many litigants have uh, come to the court through email and uh, said, um, uh, we just as soon rest on our papers uh, and we'll skip uh, oral argument. And I've acceded to that in most cases, but somewhat reluctantly. and I think it would be most unfortunate if after the crisis over, it became a common experience um, because uh, while there are f- some motions that are open and shut, there are many motions where a judge does have questions after reading the briefs that he or she wants to put to the parties. And this is uh, the opportunity to do so. Um, And I think uh, because of the logistical issues presented presently, uh, judges have become more willing to dispense with oral argument. Uh, Sometimes, uh, in my understanding, some courts even have uh, informed the parties unilaterally that they're going to not have oral argument. And I can understand that under the current crisis, but I think it would be a, a most unfortunate develop in, development in the long run. Now, uh, you you talked about how you are, in in some cases, accepting these requests to not have oral arguments. Sometimes oral argument is uh, is unavoidable, and I know you have held some. And actually, our, our idea to interview you came out of a, a story that my colleague uh, uh, Suzanne Munyak wrote about an immigration hearing um, that went a little bit sideways. I know that everyone's kind of making their way in this new sort of digital reality. Can you can you relay uh, that anecdote for us? Yes. So first of all, you have to uh, start with the, uh, I think, well-established principle that uh, all judges, and especially me, are technologically challenged. Um, so <laughs> you uh, you said it, not yeah. us, but st- stipulate. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's you know, I was an English major. Uh, <laughs> sure. uh, what do I know about this stuff? But um, the um, uh, I had held a number of telephone oral arguments because, of course, uh, everyone is uh, um, at home. And some had gone as long as an hour and a half and without any problems. But 
Then uh, I had an argument in a case that had considerable um, public attention. And of course, in any of these arguments, because we want to maintain the same thing as a public court, mm-hmm. we offer everyone a phone number that they can call into and listen to the argument. Yep. So in this case, 50 or more people called in and many of them forgot to <laughs> mute their telephones. This is very and, relatable. <laughs> and the result was that uh, we heard all sorts of background noise uh, that made it very difficult for the lawyers and myself to uh, continue with the argument. And eventually it, it, it did get to me and I was fairly, I gave a fairly stiff warning that if uh, everyone wasn't going to mute their phones immediately, I would have to forget about oral argument and just proceed on the papers. Uh, And that largely succeeded. um, And we went, I think, uh, at least 45 minutes without any further problem. But then towards maybe about two thirds into it, there was again, uh, some background noise. And I didn't pick up the words at the time, but you guys did. (laughs) And it was to the effect of, gee, this is so boring. Uh, and, so and much I for thought, a case of national importance. Well, no, no, I <laughs> thought, geez. gee, that's the greatest compliment uh, any judge or lawyer can get. Um, we're, we're, we're not interested in creating an entertainment. We're interested right. in serious issues. So um, the boring, the more boring, the better. But <laughs> well, this is, and this is actually interesting because I, because I really doubt anything like that would have remotely happened in open court in person. Someone had someone, someone like trying to say right. that even within remote earshot of you. So right. in, they might have whispered it to their to their colleague <laughs> in the third row, but something like that. But <laughs> right, a, a different point. Afterwards, I called our tech guys. And they said, oh, there's a way, and they showed me how to do it for the future, where the host of the call, which was me, can right. mute, can mute the, uh, everyone on the line from my end. Oh. Um, I'll bet you so, wish you had that power in real life, Judge, sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's a good point. <laughs> yes, uh, particularly when my children were younger. But in uh, <laughs> uh, any event, uh, uh, the the so uh, you know going forward i don't expect to have that problem again i do think this is typical many of my colleagues in other uh, situations involving like for example um guilty pleas taken by video um uh, have had you know issues that are all solvable but it takes a while for the judges to get the hang of it well, as you laid out in in your piece, and we've talked a little bit about here, the the courts are under a, a decent amount of you know strain during this process, and and obviously m- muting your phones is a pretty easy thing that that folks can do to sort of you know not you add think. to the problem. But you would um, think. Is there anything else? We have a lot of attorneys who who listen to the show. Is there anything that that folks going into court in these kind of virtual situations can do from your perspective to to not make things any worse? Well. Uh, I have to say, uh, by and large, the the lawyers um, uh, who've who've uh, had arguments, uh, remote uh, arguments before me, have have been splendid, and um, I don't have 
uh, any uh, real complaints. Um, the uh, uh, I would say the the biggest problem we've had is in criminal matters where um, the uh, lawyer and the uh, defendant need to talk to each other privately. Sure. And there is um, equipment for allowing that to happen, um, uh, but it's important that the lawyers are sure that that muting, in effect, is on <laughs> before they start their conversation. So that's yeah. been a little, little glitch. Um, I guess my biggest issue is not one that is a function of anything that lawyers can do, but it's this. Uh, a major advantage of everyday argument live before a judge is that you, the litigant, get to see what the judge is interested mm -hmm. and the judge gets to see what you consider important and what you consider less important. And there is that, for lack of a better word, body language that's operating. And um, it's very hard to convey those same messages telephonically. Um, so um, I've had uh, lawyers, for example, uh, go on a great length about arguments that frankly, I thought were not their strongest arguments, mm -hmm. but they're not, if they were in court, they would see me uh, <laughs> looking bored. Grimacing. Sure. <laughs> and, uh, and the whole bored thing would, goes, goes two ways. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, and they would move on. So, I mean, that kind of subtle mm -hmm. interplay is missing, but I'm not sure there's much lawyers can do about it. Well, uh, this is obviously a tumultuous time, uh, in in all walks of life, and it's certainly clarifying to hear that the uh, that the federal courts are no different. Uh, Judge Jed Rakoff, uh, thanks so much for joining us on Pro Se. My pleasure. Thanks, Judge. Bye. 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 Our show is something offbeat, and uh, we're going to go back to talking about the Supreme Court for this one. Uh, I'm not really going to hide the ball here. Uh, somebody flushed the toilet during a Supreme Court <laughs> argument this week in just what is yeah, what, what has got to be the the, the 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 highest profile example of some Zoom call etiquette breach uh, that I can think about. Um, there was a case being argued. It's about the Telephone Consumer Protection Act. It's about if the government is allowed to robocall you. It doesn't really matter. The guy who was arguing uh, uh, for the petitioners uh, is a man named Ramon Martinez, and he was making an argument. And then let's just go to the clip. Back that, and it contemplates that that the subject matter of the call might range beyond the collection of government-backed debt. Maybe they're going to be marketing some other product. Maybe they're going to be saying, hey, call your congressman and uh, change these laws that apply to banks. And what the FCC has said is that when the subject matter of the call ranges to the topic, then the call is transformed. And it's, it's yeah. a call that would have been allowed and it's no longer allowed. And so I think that... <laughs> 
I've listened to it. It's so distinctive. I haven't heard it until just this moment. I left my I left myself clean until now so that I can hear it for the first time. It's so good. <laughs> oh man! I mean, I don't even know. There's not that much to say. I mean, you said it, Amber. No. Like, it's 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 so distinct. And I wanted to shout out. I mean, listen, everyone should go listen to the term. They are talking about this as well. Jimmy Hoover. You will not find a better Supreme Court reporter than Jimmy than our own Jimmy Hoover. But he he put it on Twitter. He's the one who. This is where I saw it first. And he was way too charitable in his framing, Jimmy. If you're listening, because he was like he framed it as a question. Did we just hear a, a toilet flush during a Supreme Court argument? Listen for yourself. It's unmistakable. There's it like is. the metallic clink it. of the handle we were talking about before. It sounds like somebody's literally holding their microphone over the toilet. Now, look, I don't want to be indelicate. Uh, <laughs> Way too late for that, but go ahead. Do we know, uh, was this an attorney was it a well, Supreme Court justice? Here's that had what I to love about this. Flush. So as soon as this happened, I immediately got one million chats from various people in the office being like, Are you listening to the Supreme Court argument? Did you hear that? And so, of course, all the speculation immediately starts. But as Alex said, Jimmy Hoover is a great reporter. So what do you do if you're a great reporter? You ask an uncomfortable question of the attorney who was arguing, and you reach out and say, "You try to flush hey, the truth out of them." Did you flush the toilet? I um, mean, it, <laughs> yeah, th- that attorney actually responded to Jimmy and was like, "No, it." Well, wasn't wouldn't you want to set the record straight? You know, I mean, you I, I, I never thought that the guy who was arguing. I mean, that would be a huge flag. I mean, well, I don't it even. Would, but I mean, I think you. <laughs> I don't even know where to be begin asked. with that. You've got but, a, I mean, it, it's. Well, you have to any start good there. murder mystery, you yeah, have yeah, to yeah, eliminate you have to start suspects. There. That's that's one very that's very true. Yes. What's deeply unfortunate <laughs> for that guy is that uh, the C-SPAN presentation of this. Oh yeah, was to show the the sort of like you know headshot of the person who was speaking yeah. when they were speaking. <laughs> so this occurred while he was speaking. So it looks it just looks like he's like calling <laughs> oh, yeah. in from the toilet. Like it's it could di- it's tough. Yeah. He could be like it, it. could be just lost to history because of that presentation that he is the flusher, even if he's right. likely not and has and has actually well, denied it. When he said that he wasn't, um, it leaves it now. It, it has to be a justice, you guys, because they were the other <laughs> ones who were not on mute on this call. Uh, they were, I think, if I understand this correctly, they were responsible for muting themselves. So we may have seen just a classic. A video conference. I mean, this was just by phone, but classic teleconference mishap where somebody thinks they're on mute and they're not. They weren't the justices- calling in from uh, <laughs> from the bench. They were calling in from the throne. There you go. <laughs> Great. So happy we've ended the show talking about where we had a main segment talking about the technology we're all dealing with, with this classic goof. It, it is a classic goof. That's It's true. a goof. Everyone's goofing. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Thanks for being with me today, guys. Thanks a lot, Bill. See you again next week, guys. And Alex. Thanks. We also want to thank our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader. Our graphic designer, Chris Yates. Our guest this week, Judge Jed Rakoff. Contributing reporters, Mike LaSusa, Zach Zagger, Jimmy Hoover, and Suzanne Moniak. Music for the show comes from Silent Partner. If you like Pro Se, leave us a written review on Apple Podcasts so other people can find our show. 
And if you want to know more about anything we've talked about today, just check out our website. It's law360.com slash podcast. Thanks and see you again next week. This week, the Pro Se Podcast is sponsored by Roundtable Group. For over 25 years, Roundtable Group has been the leading provider of expert witness referrals to litigators. Roundtable Group's skilled team is available now to discuss your case and present candidates and fee schedules free of charge. Just visit roundtablegroup.com or call 202-935-3300.